Chapter 17, Return to Eden. I'd like to begin this Eden chapter by looking into the meaning of that name Eden. Strong's exhaustive concordance tells us it means where Adam dwelt, but obviously that is not what the Hebrew word Eden literally means. That said, another way to find the meaning of a Hebrew word is to look at the meanings of each individual Hebrew letter, considering each letter has its own particular meaning. The first Hebrew letter spelling Eden is Ayin, which means to see and or know. The second letter is Daleth, which means door and or pathway. The final letter is Resh, which means head and or highest person. Putting them all together, Eden means to see and know the door and pathway to the head or the highest person. How amazing to realize the head or the highest person in the Garden of Eden was the Tree of Life which, of course, was a metaphor for the Creator. Of course, to find that tree of life, we first need to see and know that Eden is the door and or pathway to that immortal life. Before continuing to Eden, let's refresh. The fall harvest began with the Feast of Trumpets and Donald Trump's King Trumpet's marvelous, miraculous election, followed by the impossible, that is, miraculous, Revelation 12 sign of the woman in heaven. Shockingly, it was seen for real during the literal celebration of the Feast of Trumpets in September of 2017. Adding to that impossible supernatural sign are the solar eclipses, the second of which forms a tav, the Hebrew letter meaning sign or covenant and or covering, that is, a place of safety. Those eclipses and the Revelation 12 sign are Yahweh's heavenly announcement. He remembers his covenant with his people to save, protect, and provide for them. Remember, the giving of that covenant to Abram, his son Isaac, and finally his grandson Jacob was just earlier this, i.e. spiritual week. Plus, part of that covenant with ancient Israel was for them to be a righteous light to the Gentile world. Unfortunately, they failed miserably, becoming even worse than the pagans. But in spite of how evil ancient Israel became, like now, their or our evil behavior forced the Creator to temporarily lift his protection to bring them back. But after repenting, he never failed to forgive them. See the book of Judges. Again, the solar eclipses along with the Revelation 12 heavenly sign of the woman tell us that great eagle Michael is given the responsibility to get her into her place of protection for three and one half years. At this point, we don't have 100% biblical proof of the location of this place of protection and provision the woman is taken, although Jeremiah 3.14 tells us it is Zion. And we do have great circumstantial evidence it is Zion, Utah, or Judah. Since one of the meanings of Zion is where Yahweh's spirit dwells, he needs only place his spirit there for it to be Zion. Although he, Yahweh himself does not literally come to earth until the very end when he puts down the rule of all nations, that's in Revelation 9, Joel 2, and Zechariah 14, in the event called the Day of Yahweh, which is wrongly translated the Day of the Lord. But this chapter deals with the epoch that precedes Yahweh's literal coming. This preceding time period is the literal fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles, referred to as the Millennium, due to Revelation 20 calling it a thousand years but it can actually only be 800 years considering the Feast of Tabernacles picturing that time period is only 8 days. 1,000 years was, a, was commonly used in ancient time in the metaphorical sense of a long period of time. 
That time period was anciently rehearsed as the physical type of the real spiritual promised land that is Canaan that is coming. Interestingly, no one knows the exact years, but there's strong evidence the Babylonian captivity of Judah, the southern kingdom, was very near 800 years from the establishment of Israel in Canaan, just as the festival of tabernacles showed. Even more exciting, and as briefly noted in the last chapter, we have very compelling evidence that Yeshua, our Messiah and High Priest, will be the chief one leading modern Israel into the new promised land. We can take a stand on that, considering the one that led them into the first promised land had the same name, Yeshua, although it's been anglicized into Joshua, i.e. there's no J in Hebrew or Greek. 1 Corinthians 10.11 tells us the events in ancient times were rehearsals or examples, that is types, of the real events to come. The Greek word translated examples is tupos, which is the Greek word for a printer's die, meaning exact copy. But then you don't rehearse a play like the feasts and then change them on opening, opening night. <clears throat> Solomon also tells us what was will be again. That's Ecclesiastes 1.9 like the return of Eden. Interestingly, Joshua or Yahshua was an Ephraimite and the United States is modern Ephraim. But it wasn't only Yeshua that led Israel into the Promised Land, but Caleb from the tribe of Judah. <clears throat> the modern nation of Judah is the one they presently call Israel, even though they only allow Jews, that is, of Jewish blood, to emigrate. So we can safely conclude the, two, the same two tribes that led ancient Israel will be instrumental in leading modern Israel into the new promised land. After all, Ezekiel 37 tells us Yahweh is going to bring the stick of Ephraim or Israel and the stick of Judah back together as one nation, which again has already happened to a degree. There are as many Jews in the United States, that is modern Ephraim, as in the little nation they call Israel. That said, just where is this new promised land? Well, I'm going to speculate a little, but we do have good circumstantial evidence for this conclusion. One of the chief evidences is the fact this place has to be large enough for the great re resurrection of the whole house of Israel, which could be easily in the hundreds of millions or even billions. Unfortunately, that tiny speck of real estate in the Middle East called Israel couldn't begin to house and support all those people considering the millennial prophecies tell us everyone will have their own vine and fig tree. That means everyone has a piece of property on which to live and grow things. Plus, Ezekiel 38 and Revelation 20 both tell us the descendants of Japheth, Gog and Magog, will attend to invade this land of unwalled villages with an army of 200 million. Either they expect huge resistance, which makes no sense considering Yahweh's people are a land of unwalled villages with no military, or there's another reason for such a monstrous army. In fact, an army a fraction of that size, even a couple of hundred thousand, could easily overwhelm the modern Jewish nation of Israel. An army that size of 200 million only makes sense if it is invading a land as large as the United States. Besides, we are told there are no walls which our modern nation of Jews does have. Another piece of the puzzle many use to argue this new promised land is Judea is the fact Jerusalem is called Zion in many places in Scripture. But again, Zion loosely means where Yahweh or Yahweh's spirit dwells. 
That meaning comes from the fact the Spirit of Yahweh literally resided in an exclusive throne room in the west end of Solomon's temple, with the only entrance from the east. That entrance was through the court of the priests, where only the priests were allowed. That set-apart or exclusive place of Yahweh's abode, housing the physical replica of his throne called the Ark of the Covenant, was badly translated the Holy of Holies, which has caused much of the meaning to be lost. The better translation is the most sacred place, or in other words, a doubly exclusive place. Well, Solomon's temple and the Ark of the Covenant are apparently long gone, which again was a type of Yahweh's throne called the Mercy Seat. With that in mind, there is a place in Utah, after all, Utah is an evolved form of Judah, or Judah, also called a Zion. And the really shocking thing is, a Zion, Utah, is roughly configured like a huge version of Solomon's temple. There is even a monstrous rock on the west side of the canyon called the West Temple. Not only that, not only was Yahweh's throne in the west end of the temple, but in Isaiah 48, Yahweh calls himself the rock. In fact, that's the origin of the gospel song, Rock of Ages. Zion Canyon is also full of biblical names such as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and even a mountain at the entrance called the Watchman. On top of that, there's the Court of the Patriarchs, the Great White Throne, also on the west side, Mount Carmel, uh, the Virgin River, the Narrows, and the list goes on. Is this all just coincidence? I don't believe it for an instant. Remember, there is no word in Hebrew for coincidence. Another case can be made for Zion, Utah, to be Yahweh's temporary temple for the new Eden, considering it qualifies as a temple not made with human hands. Another temple not made with human hands is Yahweh's permanent new temple or city in Revelation 21, which is 1,500 miles square and tall and descends upon the original Jerusalem site after the new heavens and earth. So the Zion, Utah site can easily qualify as a temporary site until that new city descends. An interesting aside was the decree no building sounds were to be heard at Solomon's temple site. Everything was to be crafted off-site and only assembled on-site. No doubt that re decree was reflecting how the new Jerusalem, or the new temple, is built in heaven before descending on the Jerusalem site. That said, the idea for a temporary temple site is also logical considering the temple was kept in a place called Shiloh in the tribe of Ephraim for some 230 years until Solomon's temple was built in Jerusalem. And Shiloh was in the tribal ter territory of Ephraim, just as is Zion, Utah. Also, there's a prophecy in Genesis 49.10 telling us the scepter of King David would not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. Well, Christianity has tried to make the case Shiloh is a reference to Jesus, but that conclusion doesn't hold any water considering the Queen of England, who traces her lineage to King David, still has his scepter. Remember, the British Isles were settled by King Zedekiah's daughters, that is, of Judah. Plus, Yeshua came and went in the first century, which means Shiloh cannot mean Jesus or Yeshua. But how amazing to look up the meaning of Shiloh and find its original meaning comes from the Hebrew word Shalah, meaning tranquility, security, happiness, prosperity, and safety. All those words perfectly describe the new promised land, the new Garden of Eden, as we will shortly see. Again, just more evidence Zion, Utah, or Judah 
could very well be the seed or the heart of the new promised land mentioned in the parable of the mustard seed. There we find Yeshua telling his disciples the kingdom would begin tiny like the mustard seed and grow huge until it fills the earth, which no doubt is the reason for Gog and Magog's coming at them with a 200 million man army. Again, the land Gog and Magog attempt to plunder in Ezekiel 38 and 39 has to be a very large land, which the territory of the U.S. fits quite well. Remember, the United States is modern Ephraim, and Ezekiel 37 prophesies all the Israelite tribes will be reunited into one nation again. With that foundational information in mind, let's take a look at what the scriptures tell us about this new promised land, i.e. the new Garden of Eden. Actually, it's not new. It's more like a return of the Garden of Yahweh. After Eve and Adam chose to embrace the dragon, that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and its spirit of pride, they had literally chosen to vacate Eden. To stay in Eden, that is Yahweh's home, they needed to embrace the tree of life, which is a metaphor for Chokmah, which we would discuss in the next chapter, Yahweh and his Torah. The dragon was a ticket to death, which we still have to this day, unless we find that tree of life. And as discussed earlier, to choose life and truth, we first need to reject the dragon spirit of pride, and secondly, fill the ensuing void with Yahweh's spirit of life, that is, immortality. To partake of that spirit, or the tree of life, we need to follow the living or life instructions our Creator has provided. At that point, we are open to the great infilling of Yahweh's spirit. Once filled, that is impregnated, we will be on our way to being born again, that is, of actual spirit. Of course, as with any impregnation, there is the gestation period. And if you've been paying attention, you understand time in the spirit world is radically different from this physical realm. That will be discussed in the next chapter, but for now, let's take a look at some of those prophecies of what it will be like in the new garden. Obviously, it will be much like the original where everything was provided, like it was for Adam and Eve. They did not have to go till the ground and sweat to eat. In fact, the Israelites wandering in the desert were given the same kind of provision. Remember, they had their food rain down each night, needing only to gather it in the morning, much like Eden. They also had a rock, that is an angel, anointed to follow them and provide a continual fountain of water. We see that in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 15. That was one of the reasons Moses was chastised for striking the rock in lieu of speaking or commanding to it. It was one of Yahweh's faithful angels. And just as Adam and Eve did not have to worry about clothes as they were living in a perfect climate-controlled environment, we see similar provision with the Israelites. Another of Yahweh's faithful angels, that is Michael, the eagle, provided them with shade from the hot desert sun during the day and warmth and light at night with the pillar of fire. Obviously, clothes were needed with the Israelites, but we're told those clothes and shoes never wore out. That's in Deuteronomy 29.5. Again, miraculous provision was everywhere. And even though the ancient Israelites were not in a garden, all their needs were still taken care of. In the return to Eden, it not only will, will everything be provided, but the land and desert will bloom or blossom like a rose. As we see in Isaiah 35.1. There it says, The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It really will be a Garden of Eden. 
and yet so much more. We're told in Ezekiel 38:11 there will be no walls or fortifications around the homes or villages. That means the people there will have complete divine protection as Ezekiel 38 and 39 show. Isaiah 35, 4 confirms that thought. There it says, Say to those that are fearful, Be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, and with the recompense of He will come and save you. It's exactly what happens when Gog and Magog attack with their 200 million man army. They're, they're slaughtered by Yahweh's angels as the Israelites watch from the hilltops. They didn't lift a finger to defend themselves and, in fact, spend years collecting the spoils and burying the bones or the bodies. Again, they will have no need for a military or self-protection. What we see in those last couple of scriptures is there will also be no crime or need for police, let alone a military. No one will be trying to take our stuff, including an oppressive government. Additional description is given in Isaiah 65. That's verse 22 and 23 where it says, My elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. For they, will be, they shall be the descendants of the blessed of Yahweh and their offspring or grandchildren with them. With the thought of healing in mind, let's take a look, take a look at some additional Eden prophecies. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing, for the water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. What that prophecy is telling us is, all who enter the new Eden will be healed. Imagine, no more infirmities and or sickness. That is so exciting and amazing, but there's still so much more. With rebuilding in mind, let's read Isaiah 65, 21 through 22. They, that is, in the new Eden, shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit, and they shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. Joel 2.26 adds more. You shall eat and plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of Yahweh your God, and not the pagan or false names, who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be put to shame, that is, again, then you shall know I am in the midst of Israel, that is Eden, and that I am Yahweh, your God, and there is no other, that is for you. Wow, imagine living in such peace and prosperity. Speaking of peace, it will not only be with each other, but in the animal kingdom as well. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my set-apart set mountain, that is Eden, says Yahweh. That's Isaiah 65, 25. Talk about paradise, but there's still more yet. It shall come to pass before, before they call, I will answer, and while they are still speaking, I will hear. That's in Isaiah 65, 24. In other words, no more praying and wondering if our prayers are heard. In fact, if we read between lines a little, our relationship with our Creator there will be no different from the way it was with Adam and Eve. Let's continue with verse 20 of Isaiah 65. There it says, No more will an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. And as we read earlier, everyone will be healed of all infirmities and or maladies. And without any health or body issues, we'll no longer be dying, as the next scripture tells us. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. That's Isaiah 65, 22. 
The book of Jubilees, once a part of the Old Testament canon, also confirms that scripture by telling us, all will become like youths and live up to 1,000 years. Of course, what that means is those in the New Eden will be able to live all the way to the end if they so desire. The explanation for this longevity is also found in scriptures such as Joel. Joel 2 is a prophecy for the beginning of the New Eden. There it says, Be glad then, you children of Zion, uh, and rejoice in Yahweh your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down for you, the former and the latter rain in the first month, that is, of the New Eden. No doubt the former rain is a reference to the raining down of Yahweh's spirit in the first century. In fact, Peter was quoting Joel 2, which we were just reading, in reference to what was happening there in Acts 2, the great outpouring of Yahweh's spirit, that is, of immortal life. I'd like to end this chapter with a couple more prophecies from Isaiah 35. This is, this is verse 8 and 10. It says there, A highway shall be there, that is in Eden, and it shall be called the highway of righteousness. And the unclean, that is the sinners and the evil spirits, shall not pass over it. And the ransomed of Yahweh shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy, honor in their heads and hearts. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Again, I'd like to end this chapter as it began by being reminded of the meanings of the letters spelling Eden. <clears throat> Again, the three letters making up the Hebrew spelling of Eden are Ann, Dalth, and Resh. Ann means to see and know. Dalth means door and or pathway. And the last letter, Resh, means head or highest person. Putting them together, Eden is about seeing and knowing the door and the pathway to the highest person. Of course, that is a direct reference to the tree of life, or Yahweh. How shocking and amazing to find everything in the Garden of Eden was anciently, was in the Garden of Eden and will be again, only this time on a massive scale. Its purpose with Adam and Eve was the same as it will be in the new one. After all, Malachi 3.6 tells us, I am Yahweh and I do not change. And if you think this chapter was a mind blower, you had better put your seatbelt on for the next one which is Hokmah, the mother of mankind.